there's a column for that A1, A2, B5, B6, A, B9. Ooh, ooh, ooh. We know those are cells. Hi, thanks so much for joining us for our fourth episode of There's a Column for That. I'm your host, author, storyteller, and podcaster, Jamie Beth Cohen. Today, I'm talking to Stephanie King, writer and education activist in Philadelphia, PA. I love talking to Stephanie about the ways our lives and passions overlap. We're both parents, writers, spreadsheet lovers, and have spent time in the higher education field. I also enjoyed learning about how Stephanie has taken publicly available spreadsheets from the Philadelphia School District and used them to prove inconvenient facts that the district likely already knew but would prefer not to acknowledge. For anyone who has listened to Nice White Parents or School Colors, this will be an interesting corollary from Philadelphia. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. This chat was recorded on September 23rd, and we're releasing it on October 20th. Please remember to wear your mask, Black Lives Still Matter, and it's 14 days until Election Day. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for coming on. There's a column for that. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you live, how you identify, what line of work you're in? So my name is Stephanie King, and I am a short story writer and education activist who lives in Philadelphia. Um, The education activist part is a little bit unexpected and has happened in the last couple of years through my experiences having children in the Philadelphia School District. But before that, I wrote short stories and novels, and I was using spreadsheets to keep track of characters and things like that. My day job is teaching adult education in North Philadelphia. Great. Thanks so much for taking time. I know this is a super busy time for you and for us all, but you may be more than most. Um, So I want to get right into it. And you know, how do you interact with spreadsheets in your work or your life? So I've been a big lover of spreadsheets for a long time. Um, I'm one of those people who figured out basically when Google was invented that you could just ask Google, how do I do XYZ in Excel? And it would tell you, and then you could make spreadsheets do all of your work for you so they really they really are great (laughs) right they really are the secret trick to looking incredibly competent at work so my background has been in university administration and the real key in university administration is institutional knowledge you know, knowing who does what, when, and who did it that way 30 years ago, and Mm -hmm. when people are coming up for tenure, and, you know, basically just keeping all of these different balls in the air and cycling through things repeatedly. And so I learned, you know, very early on that our institutional research office had these huge spreadsheets of data about anything I would ever want to ask a question about. And so by automating tasks, I could, number one, save myself a whole bunch of time, and number two, look really smart. So when people would say, 
oh, it's, it's time for somebody to be the chair of the anthropology department, I could say, well, these six people have been the chair of the anthropology department and the last one was in 2018 and, you know, have all of this information at my fingertips instantly because I had taken the time to make a pivot table that said, check all of these spreadsheets and tell me how many times this name appeared and how many times they were chair. So that I could, you know, I like, I could use Excel to have an institutional knowledge that went so far back beyond what I had experienced myself. Right. And I, so I also work in higher education. I'm also a writer. I feel like we have lots of overlaps in our interests and our passions. And I did not know that such a thing as an institutional research office existed until I had my first job in a, in a university. And then when I started working in K-12, I was horrified to learn that there wasn't an institutional research office. And I was like, what do you mean? It can do this and it can do this and it can do this. And people are like, yeah, well, the business office tracks some of that and admissions tracks some of that. And I'm thinking, oh no. And so a couple K-12 private schools now have institutional research offices, but not a lot. And I think it is a real hole because I remember the woman who ran the institutional research office uh, in the university where I worked, it sounds, I think, to some people like such a dry job because it is a lot of spreadsheets. But that's sort of the, the thing that's so cool is that she had to know everything about everything before she built those spreadsheets. And so she got her finger in lots of different areas. And um, I, she was the one who encouraged me to get my master's in higher education. She taught me so much about what goes on on a college campus. And people would just look at her and think like, oh, she does something with numbers and data. It's like, no, she does everything with numbers and data. It's so cool. I mean, those institutional research people are really something. They just have an awesome amount of information at their fingertips. And I am just, a, you know, I'm a baby Excel user. Um, you know, I, I do have to, you know, watch a YouTube video or Google to do the, you know, the advanced level stuff, the intermediate stuff I can handle myself pretty easily. You can get, if somebody else has already done that work for you, you can use that information that's available to you really powerfully, even with kind of a, a minimum set of skills. I agree. What about your biggest or favorite problem, program, or project you've tackled with a spreadsheet? The story of my activism in the Philadelphia School District is really the story of institutional research. So I moved into a gentrifying neighborhood over a decade ago, and there were exactly three kids who were white in the play yard. And I hadn't even had kids yet, but I thought, oh, hey, that'll change as the neighborhood changes. And so fast forward to, you know, last year, it, it didn't, spoiler alert, um, I was the mother of two of the four white kids in the school. But the neighborhood had gentrified enormously in those 10 years. And so I could see that the neighborhood had gotten significantly whiter, even though the school did not have any white students coming into it. So 
I got interested, you know, I knew what my personal experience was, you know, what my anecdata was, that, you know, I could see all these white families at the playground and not see them in the schoolyard. And then I kind of got interested in, well, is this just me? Is this just something that, you know, I have a particular bug about and so I'm seeing it, you know, where it, it isn't actually there. And then I found out that the school district of Philadelphia does um, make its demographic information, its school transfer information, its selective school information publicly available. It is on the Philadelphia School District website. And so I started downloading these Excel spreadsheets that not only confirmed what I already knew, which was that white parents in my neighborhood were using the school transfer process to switch to other schools that were significantly whiter, um, but that that was a pattern around the city. And as I got better at manipulating spreadsheets, I could tell, you know, what was going on in, you know, in any neighborhood in Philadelphia in any year and start looking at these patterns where as one school got whiter, then, you know, there could be a cascading effect as it got, as that school got full. You could, you could watch this happening in the numbers. You could see the transfer numbers into the white school. You could see on a school by school basis that there were almost no kids in the eighth grade who were white, but the kindergarten was half white because of, you know, this phenomenon. And so I really just started getting Number one, I started just getting interested in the data and how much I could tell about the, the school district as a system. And number two, how I could use those numbers to bring it back and advocate for something that was really important to me personally. And what is that thing that was really important to you personally? What's really important to me personally is that school funding is driven by enrollment um, because. In, you know, I, in little towns, you have your school taxes and everybody goes to the same school and it's fine. But what happens in the city of Philadelphia is that the schools that have more students in them and more white students get more stuff and the schools that don't do not. You know, so my school had been being savaged by teacher cuts and, you know, kind of kicked to the curb. You know, I was able to say, you are letting all you are letting this happen systemically. You are, are letting you you know you are letting these demographics shift it's not it's not residential segregation it's not coincidence you the school district is letting this thing happen and here are the numbers that i can show you to prove that it's happening and i mean even before the moment this year where there's a renewed focus on black lives matter there were starting to be more conversations about school segregation in Philadelphia, school segregation in the admissions process to our select schools that hadn't, that, that weren't happening or, or hadn't been happening, you know, even five years ago. I, so I think having more of a discussion with people who are familiar with the numbers has shifted the tone a little bit that, you know, people can't just say that it's the perception that the Philadelphia school district is segregated when you've got the numbers that show that it is. And I feel like you've recently had some wins in this area if, from following you on Facebook. Can you talk a little bit? And what is leveling in, in this? <laughs> so <laughs> um, leveling is the process in the 
school district of Philadelphia, where they take teachers away from the schools that are under-enrolled and redistribute them to the schools that have more enrollment. If you're a person who approaches schools from a business perspective, it really makes sense. You're like, we have more students over here. We should shift our personnel over there. But in reality, it's very disruptive for schools in Philadelphia because they do it in the middle of the year, number one. So school has been underway for six weeks, and then they will come in and they will take a teacher out of a classroom that's already underway. And all the other teachers in that school might have to move around in order to fill that hole as the classes are redistributed. So six weeks into the year, you might have your kid might have their teacher pulled from them, and then their new teacher could be somebody who has never taught that grade for before. And that's hap that happened to my daughter twice. Not the, the the second part, but you know, she just suddenly had a new teacher in October because either her teacher had been taken away or some teacher somewhere else had, and it had been kind of this cascading effect. The reason, I mean, and so it's heartless and it obviously should be stopped, but the school district reasoning is that they can't afford to keep teachers, even when there's the slimmest margin, you know, of a, just a couple of students, they have to savagely cut teachers because they're so broke. And I mean, I mean, they are broke and that is true, but they seem to find money for other things. The point is that there is an incentive for schools to let in a lot more kids because they know they will get the teachers for them. So schools that are popular never have to worry about their teachers getting cut because number one, they have the enrollment to keep their teachers. And number two, they have they tend to be whiter and more middle class and to have more political clout when they come to yell at the superintendent about leveling so that's another fight that i've been fighting with spreadsheets for a couple of years now but with the coronavirus it was especially urgent this year because the enrollment numbers are down everywhere you know, across the school district and the, the, you know, the school district was going to do this, they were going to do the same thing. They were going to come into our online classrooms and snatch teachers away from pretty much everybody because everybody's numbers are down. And instead of this year, you know, just going to the board of education meeting by myself with my, you know, pride charts about my school, I joined forces with some other parents at other schools and we started a petition drive to get the school district to, to cancel leveling for all of the schools across the district because it would have impacted everybody and it would have been disastrous not just for morale and our sanity while we're trying to teach our kids at home but also because they you know I, they were essentially be making decisions based on faulty numbers based on coronavirus enrollment that would affect the school district for years to come as the as the students come back they wouldn't have the teachers that they needed in order to adequately staff the classrooms when we're all back in person. So that that was a win. Um, but again, it's, you know, it was about the numbers. It, it was showing how off the numbers are this year. You know, something like only 82% of students are, are actually enrolled, meaning like they're not absent, like they just they went somewhere else for the year, but they didn't disappear into the ether. So those students are, they still exist in Philadelphia somewhere, and we're going to need teachers to teach them this year and always. 
So with spreadsheets and a petition drive, you got them to stop leveling for this year. Well, it's paused. Okay. They're, they're saying that they'll um, revisit it later when we're back in schools and we'll fight them then. Right. Um, you know, but the thing that I, in getting ready for this, the thing that I really wanted to say wasn't like that I'm so cool because I can use spreadsheets. Um, but the message that I really want to kind of evangelize to anyone who's listening is that the school district knows these numbers, right? None of these numbers are a secret to them. You talked about how the, in, you know, the institutional research office, they know these numbers, these numbers exist. If they're not publicly available, you can file a freedom of information request for them. So if you, you know, for anyone out there, if you think your school district is pulling some shenanigans, you should start looking at the numbers and see if you can prove that they are and, you know, just hit them over the head with it as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. I, like you said, I mean, you're not, you didn't do data surveys. You didn't collect the data. They collected the data. You used it to show the problem which they probably already knew, but they were looking at it from a different vantage point. When I first started doing this, they had me, they had me meet with their institutional research office. I, I don't know if they thought that would mollify me or, or what, <laughs> um, but it was a mistake because she, you know, she knew even more than I did, you know, and show it that she pulled up their glorious data dashboard <laughs> you know I was all like ooh, ooh. Um, and she tried to convince me you know so in my neighborhood there's a white school and a black school yeah. um, the white school is 83% white my school the school where my child white children go is 94% black or mixed race so she tried to convince me that we were so she pulls it up and she's like so you know I'm you know, I'm, I'm doing like Sherlock Holmes sorting spreadsheets to like see how many students have switched. And she pulls it up in two seconds and tells me that I'm, you know, my school is losing four white kindergartners a year to the white school and that that's not statistically significant. To her, you know, she's looking at a system that has 200,000 students in it. So to her, it's not statistically significant that four white kids a year are moved, switching into a white school like who cares somebody's got to teach them she is no different to her who teaches them and i you know and i said well we have four white kids in our entire school so that would be a 100 increase which feels pretty statistically significant to me and you know she didn't she didn't really know what to say to that <laughs> but um you know again my point is those the numbers Generally speaking, the numbers exist and they are out there. Yeah. And uh, so, and, and that is much more, you know, it's much more useful if you come to a meeting um, with, uh, with a pie chart or with the numbers, then they can't just say, well, it seems like it's an awful lot of kids, but it really isn't. So side note, have you listened to Nice White Parents? I haven't. I don't actually listen to podcasts that much oh no don't admit that on the <laughs> podcast <laughs> um, um, I um 
a lot of people have emailed me about it though I, and um i am really glad that nice white parents is kind of getting white parents to you know reassess and think about their school choices one of the things in this work is that i find a lot more that stuff like that is it, it doesn't actually convince anybody, but it does reassure the people about who've made the choice towards more school integration to stay on that path and, and to be more comfortable and happier with their decisions. So, you know, I do, I do appreciate it for definitely bringing up the conversation, but I do think a lot of nice white parents listen to it and think that, that the podcast is talking about somebody besides them the way in which the indictment is sort of laid out is um, skillful and artful in the same way that spreadsheets and numbers convince some people. I think storytelling, and which is why I love podcasts and love writing, storytelling also has a way of opening people's eyes. And I would say I agree with you in that it can really con confirm something for someone rather than change their course. But I would also say that the way in which she peels back the layers and the onions, the layer of the onion is, is very well done, in my opinion, as a baby podcaster myself. <laughs> well, you gotta learn from the greats. Exactly, exactly. So speaking of that, um, there's also, there's a, another podcast that I should chat out, which is called School Colors. And I know you're yeah. not, so if you are, I hope people who are emailing you about nice white parents are also emailing you about School Colors because they really are great to be taken hand in hand. So Definitely. Yeah. So what about the limits of spreadsheets? What kind of problems can they not solve or what projects have they not helped you with? Well, like I said, you know, other people have this information. So, I mean, the limits are that people have to care about the information. So, we, I mean, we live in a society that could cure poverty if they wanted to. I, you know, Jeff Bezos has more than enough money to end world hunger several times over but he doesn't and we don't make him yeah data is data and it only uh impacts people who want to be impacted by it exactly so while it makes me feel really cool to show up and dunk on the school superintendent every so often um if someone is not ashamed of the fact that a neighborhood has a white school and a black school in 2020, there's very little that those numbers can do. Yeah. And so even when numbers prove something, that doesn't move the needle. You know, Medicare for all is cheaper. It's cheaper for insurance to pay for birth control than childbirth but they don't want to cover it you know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are all these there yeah. are all these numbers out there that that knowing them and proving them is one thing and then getting people to do anything about it is another yeah oh 2020 what are we gonna do with you 
Um, okay, rapid fire. We've touched on some of these a little bit. So are you an Excel, a Google Sheet, a something else person? And within that, are you a Mac, a PC, a tablet, or a phone, smartphone person? I am a strong Excel PC person. Oh, I, okay. I find Google Sheets to be extremely limited. It's like trying to work nuclear fusion with a pen. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I try to like it because I do have situations, work situations where I need to be able to make things shareable with other people, but I'm, you know, I'm constantly forgetting that I need an extra step to sort things or it's just such a pain. And, you know, I hate when something has to be on Google Sheets. I, a lot of times I will just cut and paste it off of Google Sheets onto Excel, do make the magic happen and then cut and paste it back to Google Sheets. I 100% agree. Hard agree there. All right. Do you have a favorite command or function in Excel? It's got to be sort and filter. So I do know how to make pivot tables. Well, that sounds like I do know how to make pivot tables. No, um, but one of the issues that I run into with the, the school district data is that it's not very clean. The, the same school will be put in a different way every year. And so making it impossible to compare apples to apples. So I spend just a lot of time with the data that I have sorting by, by class and then by you know, class year and then by race and then cutting and pasting it into a new tab until I get the information that I want. So like the transfer patterns, again, I could write, I could write some kind of formula, but then they, you know, one year they call it the Stephanie King school. The next year they call it the Stephanie S King school. It looks like nobody transferred. So right. instead I just, I sort by Stephanie and then, and then I have, you know, I have, no, the numbers are good. Yeah, I've been there. I've, I think I've talked on the podcast before about the difference between putting in 555 West James Street versus 555 W period James ST period versus 555 W period James STREET. So like, yeah, that you things that when the data is dirty, it makes everything else after that complicated. And so I think lots of us get really good at workarounds that work because exactly. we can't trust the data, which to anyone else, I always worry when I leave a job, they're going to be like someone else who's going to, who either knows more about Excel or knows less about Excel is going to come in and say, I don't know why she was doing it this way. This is so dumb. And really there are six reasons why I'm doing it that way. And they all make sense. But if you're not as concerned with accuracy as I am, then you're going to think I'm taking six steps too many because you could get sort of the same data by doing something else, but it's not going to be accurate. And that bothers me. Exactly. I mean, I know that sorting is not the most efficient <laughs> use of an Excel spreadsheet, but I have literally fact-checked a reporter in real time using so, you know, using sort, they're like, oh, not so many students transfer from this one school to another school. And I'm like, really? Tippy type, let me see. Oh, you're wrong. It's actually 17 students. What do you think about that? Love it. Uh, how do you feel about color coding cells and or font? I use that a lot um, in my teaching, you know, when I auto calculate grades. I do like that. I do like color coding cells a lot when it's numerical outputs that you're trying to see at a glance. And do you do that, do you do that by an, um, 
a conditional formatting or do you hand do the different I do colors? conditional formatting. Yeah. yeah, that it sounded like you were talking about conditional formatting. So I was curious about that. Yeah, I, I do a lot of hand coding and I don't show my spreadsheets to lots of people because I think they really <laughs> annoy a lot of people. But visually, I need that cue of don't get bogged down in researching six outlets to send this other piece if all you have to do today is one thing just get this piece out there so see i have the like i will relentlessly cut and paste to a new tab for you know whatever situation somebody asked me about and that's my favorite when people ask me you know do you know the demographics of the school in this neighborhood and i'm like not yet but watch this and then you know i have a whole tab and i can just spin it off into a new sheet and send it to them and say here's what you wanted to know right right i have that situation i'm uh, so i work at a seminary now a graduate school and i'm involved a lot in the hiring of adjunct professors mm -hmm. and so what i get a lot is i need the emails of everyone teaching term one and so I will literally, this is the way I do it for myself, I will, co I will copy this sheet, right? Not hand copy it, but I will duplicate the sheet and then delete everyone from term two and term three and then, and then delete all the data that I don't want this person to see and then send them the sheet that has the name, the term, and the email address. And I save that and it says, you know, like sent to RG on such and such a date. That's how I save the tab. So that if someone comes back and says, we emailed this list and the people who were supposed to get it didn't get it. And I said, well, are you emailing the term one list in term two? Because the same people don't teach in term one than in term two. So I have a history of what sheets I've sent to people. I will say I, that's always one thing I like about Google Sheets is the ability to hide tabs. So, you know, you can you can make you can have your main mm -hmm. sheet and then be kind of out of sight out of mind i, I, I didn't do. i didn't know that i'm not a huge fan of google sheets i am I, i'm not either but i have the same situation you know i have students that you know they carry over from fall to spring but their address has changed or you know right my student right there's like semester updates and yes. so it's nice to keep the old information nearby but get it out of your face um, what's the one thing about spreadsheets you think other people might not know? Just how many of them there are out there. You know, there's so much information about the school district. It's de-identified, but it's just on their website. And then if you ever talk to an academic about something, you know, you go to some talk and they're like, remember about your, your favorite subject or whatever it is, you ask them about it they have some spreadsheets and they'll just send it to you. They're like, would you like to see the regression of home values versus school ratings? Sure, why not? And they've color coded, you know, they've color coded it and now you can just see all of their work. My daughter started in a new middle school and the first uh, like PTA, you know, parents were like, I wonder where all our students come from. <laughs> and I was like, let me pull up the spreadsheet. <laughs> That is awesome. Yeah, I think I think when you say you go to an academic talk and someone's like, oh, well, I have the spreadsheets I can send you. I was once at a conference for, and this actually gets into our next rapid fire, for a CRM. Like, I forget which CRM it was. And the guy gets up on stage and there's a bunch of like financial aid, admissions, and institutional research people at a conference for a CRM that we all used, right? Because it was a training conference. And the guy gets up on stage, he's like the VP or the president of the whole CRM. And he's like, 
you know, I'm really glad you're all here today. I know spreadsheets aren't anything that anyone gets excited about. And the people at the table I was with was like, does he not know who he's talking to? Like, <laughs> like oh my God, like spreadsheets are the best. And I remember thinking, this is why I hate CRMs. Um, but the, the people who are excited about their field and excited about the data in their field are often really excited to share it with someone else who expresses interests. So I think you're right. I think there are spreadsheets, as I've been doing the podcast, are there, there are all these different types of people. Like they're the fantasy football spreadsheet people, and they're the stock market spreadsheet people, and they're the novel writer spreadsheet people. And I just think it's really cool that this is something that to me, it separates the world into spreadsheet and non-spreadsheet people, <laughs> not fantasy football or stock market or writers or historians, right? It's, it, we're right. everywhere. Well, I don't know what those other people are doing to keep track of all of the information in the world. Where do they put it? Do they, do they write it down on a piece of paper and then put the piece of paper somewhere? I'm confused. So someone I am planning to interview, if we can get our schedules to work out, sent me a picture of his hand-drawn spreadsheet and was like, I want to come in and talk about my hand-drawn spreadsheet. And I was like, yes, let's do that. You know, I mean, it, it is funny. And now that you mention it, I think I made one this of my students. What number, what, what factors can I divide them by to make an equal number of columns? And then I will write their names on to keep track of if I actually did this thing. Yeah, so it's like an, an analog spreadsheet. I remember in fourth grade, we had a project, and I've tried to find these for my kids, and I've seen them some places, but this was like every week. We had workbooks that were called mind benders. And so those, they're the word slash logic problems where it's like, Joni stands in front of Steve, but behind anyone with a green shirt on. And yep. Rob is wearing a, an orange shirt. And so to me, the, the easier ones gave you the grid and showed you where to put, pe like, the names and the positions. Right, and the name and the color and, of the shirt. And right. And then the harder it got, you maybe had a grid, but it wasn't filled out. So you knew how many rows and columns, but you had to put the headers on. And then the harder ones had nothing. It just had the problem and you had to figure out. And so I feel like I don't know when I did my first Excel spreadsheet, but I feel like fourth grade was the first time I understood that the way you wrote something, whether it was across or down, had an impact on how you could then use the data. Well, this is how old I am. My mom was an accountant and had Lotus 1, 2, 3. Sure, sure. And she would, like, when she was really stressed out and overworked, she would, you know, give me, I mean, I was little, and she would pay me money to you know, type in some, you know, like just to type it into this spreadsheet. Yep. You had to save on DOS. I, you know, I was like seven, um, but I could type a column of, I could type a column of numbers. I couldn't interpret anything about what I was doing, but you know, I was a smart kid and I could right. get them right. And so, so shout out Lotus yep. one, two, three. Yep. And so my mom was a trained secretary. That was her profession. And she was really good at balancing like books, balancing checkbooks and things like that. So it's interesting that to me now, like one of the things that I learned in, um, from my spreadsheet guru, who I don't know if you've listened to the podcast yet, but she was our first, she's our pivot table podcaster and or pivot table Excel person. 
and she does a double check. So she will have the data and then in a, like a little place at the bottom, she'll run the data a different way. And then she'll set up a cell where this cell minus this cell should always be zero to make sure that everything's where it's supposed to be. So my mom sort of did that with a pencil and paper. And that's, she, I don't know if my mom's ever used Excel. She probably has in one of her jobs, but she was trained as a secretary before any of that and could do all of these magic things. I mean, she could take shorthand, right? She could take dictation. Um, these things that are sort of obsolete now, but I think our brains, she and I share that part of our brain and have just expressed it in the technology of our time, basically. I, I was working on one thing where I was trying to figure out how many kids there should be at each school. And I got all like, all mystical about it and I got the like the census data and a calculator and you know I should have had one of those little green visors you know and I got all like calculatory and figured you know I was like oh this is so cool I'm gonna and it, eventually I found out that you know the school district has a spreadsheet for that too it was just in a different place and when I double checked my numbers I was like not off by more than one or two kids per school <laughs> wow but it's, wow. that's a really good feeling, right? When you yes. like you when you do the analog calculations yes. for something, and then Excel Excel tells you you're right. Yes, like, that is look awesome. Look at me. I I'm basically it's just like when Isaac Newton <laughs> figured out gravity. <laughs> and our last one, which you brought up a couple times, do you know why and how to make a pivot table? I do. I um. I just find like the time it takes me to figure it out and do it is, is not, it has to pay off. I used to do it a lot when I was at Penn and had data that was, you know, I worked in faculty affairs at Penn. So things were connected to an ID number. So that was, you know, that was some pristine data. I could tell what year, like I could tell what year or what gender or what anything I wanted to know about anybody there was just I you know like every year I got emailed the spreadsheet that was like here's everyone's salary do not email you know you know you're working with people who aren't spreadsheet people when things have do not email in their file name um so you know in those situations I would use pivot tables where I knew I could rely on the data and get what I wanted out of you know truly massive data sets um, I, I, but I don't, I, you know, I don't find myself using them that much these days. Yeah. And I think that's true with a lot of things, but a lot of things in Excel, if you don't use it frequently, it then becomes a pain. It's not intuitive enough that you can just pick it up like riding a bike. So then it becomes a pain to relearn it. So then you have these workarounds where twice a year when a pivot table could help you, you're already really skilled at doing what you need to do anyway. And it's quicker. The other thing is I don't know how to make it look pretty at all. My pivot tables were always very, very functional, but just plain. And, you know, so when institutional research would send me something, you know, a pivot table or a slicer that someone had spent any brain cells on the aesthetics of, I was always woo, very impressed. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, now we're into our final thoughts. So um, just because I'm a curious person, is there 
any media that you are loving and wanting to shout out right now? And it could be TV shows, movies, albums, podcast, not podcast, books, any, <laughs> anything that you are, that's getting you through right now. Well, right now I'm in a space exploration shows phase. We are simultaneously watching Away on Netflix and Raised by Wolves on HBO Max, I think. Um, And it's, you know, it's good because they're taking place in space or not on Earth and it's 2020, so who wants to be on Earth anymore? Um, But also, you know, what I like about those shows is that they spend time thinking about how how people would actually function day to day, especially away there, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, there's like drama because of course there is, but there's also a lot of, you know, nerds sitting over their desk trying to figure out how they're going to fix a solar panel or, you know, things that I think are, I'm, I'm very interested in kind of the mechanics of how people get things done. Mm-hmm. Have you watched um, Spy in the Wild? I have not. Spy in the Wild is, I'm pretty sure, a Nat Geo show where they make an animatronic animal that they are studying and then put a camera where the eyes would be. Excellent. So you have like lemurs playing with this lemur that they think is another lemur. And then you, so you see them sort of without the human gaze, which my son has gotten really into this summer. I really loved Planet Earth you know, yeah. back when that was on. Yeah. And I loved all the behind the scenes about, you know, how a guy would dress up like a bush and then right. wait for seven days to right. see the bird of paradise do its its booty dance. Right, right. So this is similar, except you're having like little, like, and there's like, I think there was on one, like a dung camera. So it was like a pile of dung that could move, but had a little camera in it. Yeah, so yeah, highly recommend. All right. I'll check um, it out. So anything that you're working on, any of your writing, any of your activism that you would like to shout out and have people pay a little more attention to? Well, if you're in Philadelphia, I would love for you to keep the heat on the Philadelphia School District. They started an equity coalition. So far, it seems to be a lot of words. They don't seem to be very interested in actually changing any of their practices. Last year, our our state standardized tests were canceled because of coronavirus. And you would think this year for the magnet schools, they would have changed something about the entrance uh, requirements in light of that. But instead, they're just going back to the previous year's standardized tests and not actually making any kind of moves towards equity. So if you're, if you are a person in the Philadelphia school district and you need some statistics about the demographics in your school or the enrollment patterns in your neighborhood, this girl is the one that you should email or DM on Twitter because I will tell you. And if you're somewhere else, if you are a nice white parent, somewhere else and you are sending your kid to an integrated school and you're thinking, you know, okay, so I'm walking the walk, but I wonder what the numbers are to just remind you that they are there, that they exist. And you can probably start asking 
people for them. And if you're good with spreadsheets, you can probably start making some noise. Awesome. So we will put your Twitter handle in the show notes and uh, I, you'll send me some links to the data for Philadelphia. Yep. Awesome. All right. And the last question is one that you get to ask me about anything, spreadsheet or not. Well, so I know that, you know, we're both writers, you know, we've both written novels and used spreadsheets for whatever, keeping track of characters or birth dates or eye colors or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but how did you, you know, make the leap from just being a writer that was a little geeked out about spreadsheets to being this spreadsheet evangelist? So I would say that I was a spreadsheet evangelist before I started using them for writing. So I, oh, so yeah, you went the other way. I went the other way. Yeah. So spreadsheets have been my life for a long time. And I would say, and I've told this joke before, which isn't a joke. It's my real life. Um, when someone tells me they are getting married or having a baby, I often forget to say congratulations and say instead, would you like my spreadsheets? And that to me is the nicest thing that I could possibly say to someone who's about to get married or have a baby. But often it is not received in that way. So spreadsheets are how I think. And so I have been talking to people about spreadsheets and their power and their worth and their, how exciting they are for years. And I would, even though I've been writing stories since second grade and have always wanted to be a writer, those two things didn't really come together for me until after I had been yelling about spreadsheets for a while. And they came to, together in two ways. Number one, when I'm mapping out the, the plot and the timeline mm -hmm. of, a, um, of a novel, I actually don't like to use a block calendar. I like to use the column of a spreadsheet. So mm -hmm. I will autofill. 365 days, you know, of a year, and I will put the plot points in next to them so that I can see how much time elapses. Like, I don't want 12 sheets of a calendar. I want a column that shows me my plot. Um, and I use that a lot with the novel I'm working on right now because I had to overlay two different universities' academic calendars because I had characters at two different universities, then major holidays when they could see each other, and then sort of what was happening in the plot. And so um, that's how I started using spreadsheets for novels. And then I had a mentor a couple summers ago who actually uses a spreadsheet with multiple columns to plot an entire novel with character motivations, different plot points. And it's brilliant. It is in fact not how I prefer, because I'm not a plotter. So she has taught me this method. I believe in the method. She's taught it to other people. I know it works. And I still have to write a very messy first draft and then use her plots, her, her method to plot, and then write a much better second draft. But I am not to the point yet where I can plot in Excel first. Do you have the column that will tell you how old your characters are on any given date? So not like you do. So what <laughs> I have is um, I have a chart for my first novel, which took place when the main character 
was a the summer after her junior year of high school and then where everyone else was so who was who who was already in college so that i could tell at any point in time what grade someone was in but not their age because grade was more important to me for the story but i know you do <laughs> i do if i do find you know for the writers out there you know if you have something that jump that's going to jump around in time you know right. i wrote a novel that did jump around in time right and so i had a thing that would tell me how old everybody was at any given time which was funny when i was writing a flashback because then all of a sudden the babies would be like negative three right right so for me my first novel all takes place between june and october so this sort of like the summer of before senior year and then going into senior year and the novel i'm working on right now is a sequel which takes place right after the main character graduates from college so it's just the summer of that year. And again, I had to overlay two different universities, summer school sessions, which again, like one did four sessions, one did three sessions. And like, so where were the breaks where people could actually be traveling between the two universities? So yes, for me, it's always been much more about grade because I work in such a small time frame. But same idea. It's, it's great. I mean, I did for... Um, one draft of this novel that I have since tossed out, although I could go back to it, I had to plan a, a tour for a band. And so it was like, what date could they play? How, right, how, how fast can you get yes. there? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I remember thinking, I'm too tired to plan a tour for a band. And then I remembered, I didn't actually have to go on the tour. I just <laughs> had to plan it. I, I could do that much. So yes, I definitely did that in Excel rather than a calendar because the flipping of pages and I'm I, visually, I just needed to see how the time moved. So yeah. Well, thanks for that question. Cause I love the crossover. I mean, I love everything about spreadsheets, but I love the crossover of my writing life and my spreadsheet life. And again, like you, I wonder, how are these people who are not spreadsheet people plotting their novels? I mean, I guess they're all doing like bullet journals or something. I don't yeah, they're know. writing outlines, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. But, but then they have to get out the calculator every I, time it shifts. I don't yeah, know. I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah. And I'm the person who will read a book and be like, uh, yesterday was Saturday and now you're saying it's Wednesday. Like you messed up the timeline. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that question. That was wonderful. And thanks for taking the time. I know being a parent and being an educational activist and just being a human right now is tough. And I appreciate you making time for this conversation. Well, well, thank you. I, I love finding out what all the other spreadsheet people are doing. Yeah, it's great. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening today. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review everywhere you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter at column underscore pod. Special thanks to Nora Grace and Josiah for our theme song, Sam Schindler for editing and production, Nick Peterson for additional music, and you for listening. Have a great day.